unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And coming up on today's show, he's been on my AAC report on the Nightline Sports Network many times. And a good guy to talk sports with, he's Frank Murtaugh. He's the managing editor of Memphis Magazine and does a sports column for the Memphis Flyer. And Frank, standing by in the virtual green room, will join us in a few moments. Of course, one of the things we will talk about, Super Bowl double nickel, Super Bowl 5-5. The Tampa Bay Bucks are the champions behind Tom Brady. And once again, I will do it one more time for the Bucks and Brady fans out there. I was ruined. It's kind of stuck in my throat there, stuck in my throat. Ralph, look. I was ruined. You know, I can play that 500 times and still laugh. It's one of the great moments in television. <sighs> Thank you, Fonz, for helping me get that out. And the Bucks are the champions dominating the Kansas City Chiefs on their home turf. And uh, they had their boat parade today to celebrate the championship. And the Bucks, I didn't think it was possible, but here they are. Super Bowl champions of the 2020 season. How about that? And some other news, of course, uh, the UCF Knights in need of an athletic director and a head football coach have taken care of one of those items. Terry Mahodger comes over from Arkansas State where he uh, helped build that program as uh, uh, one of the up-and-comers in the group of five. And he is now the new athletic director at UCF. So now his attentions will turn to filling the vacancy left when Josh Heupel went with Danny White to Tennessee. And uh, still a lot of groundswell support for Jeff Levy, the former OC with the Knights, who has that capacity at Ole Miss under Lane Kiffin. Uh, Gus Malzahn, who was an Arkansas State coach under Bahadur. So he's a candidate. And it uh, be interesting to see how all that plays out. He just hired Butch Jones at Arkansas State to fill their latest opening there so immediately he's uh almost within three months about to hire another football coach this time though for the ucf knights all right my pleasure to welcome to a show a gentleman i've had on my aac report over on the nightline sports network many times uh he's kind of my eyes and ears on the memphis tigers he is the managing editor of Memphis Magazine, does sports uh, for MemphisFlyer.com, and he is Frank Murtaugh, joining us uh, as one of my stable of sports guys today. Frank, thanks for so much for being here. I appreciate you having me, Jeff. Looking forward to the chat. Thank you. Yes, uh, you're uh, one of the guys I enjoy talking sports with, and uh, uh, we got a few things to discuss, uh, most mainly, of course. Uh, we just uh, finished up Super Bowl Double Nickel. Uh, with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, now the world champions. And, uh, you know, I guess people are running out of words for Tom Brady, but I'm going to ask you to try to come up with some words about Tom Brady. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jeff, um, three or four times in my life I've said that's the last time I'm going to bet against Tom Brady. And I've got to say it again because I, I had the Chiefs winning by two touchdowns. I thought Mahomes even minus a couple of offensive linemen uh, was too good. The Chiefs were too strong. And it just it turned into quite the opposite. Um, yeah, the, the Brady superlatives. He's um, he's extraordinary. I'm I'm not among the, uh, the the thousands or maybe millions of Brady haters. I I think I've I've got some Tom Brady fatigue. Um, but he, um, he he's now put himself in a place, Jeff, where it's not so much a discussion of is he the greatest player to ever wear an NFL uniform, but but where does he stand among all you know North American team sport athletes and you know his his presence up there with say michael jordan or you know babe ruth hank aaron wayne gretzky these types is is solid and he's he's starting to make a debate for being at the top of the list yeah no question i thought i'm thinking the only guy who has more championship rings than him would be bill russell right (laughs) yeah sounds right and and in a sport like football jeff let's remember i mean he he won his first super bowl 19 years ago that that just doesn't compute this is a sport where if you play 
seven years, you've had a good career. Mm. If you've played 10, you know, you're, you clearly are, are something special. To play, what is he going on, 21 years, I believe, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's beyond description. I, I think among the brainstorming I did over his, his stature, I, I considered his greatest rival. You know, it, when the history books are written and Tom Brady finally does retire at age 62, <laughs> his greatest rival will still have been Peyton Manning. And, um, you know, Peyton Manning was elected to the Hall of Fame just Saturday, the, you know, the day before uh, Brady won his seventh Super Bowl. Consider that there's a five-year waiting period for players to enter the Hall of Fame. And, and Manning got in, of course, on his first ballot. Tom Brady has won three Super Bowls during Peyton Manning's waiting period for the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I mean, that's just, it's, it's a silly, uh, it's a silly stat, a silly figure. It doesn't compute with other you know, uh, achievements in, in NFL history. And uh, he's, I wrote a column, I think it's five or six years ago now, um, uh, Jeff, that um, Brady is the first one-man dynasty in the history of American team sports. And and to sum it up briefly, he, he's won all these championships. And you and I can count on one hand the Hall of Famers that he's played with. I, I believe Ty Law is in the Hall of Fame, but it, it is not like there's a collection of seven or eight New England Patriots uh, from the last two decades that are in the Hall of Fame where, you know, Brady will someday open and close the door for people. But um, it, it, it's just, it's the Tom Brady show. And, and clearly this year he goes to Tampa Bay, a team that was not on Super Bowl radars, uh, you know, 12 months ago. And, and they're they're champions of the sport. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, you know, and, I, and I'm with you. I've I've often said, you know, don't bet against Brady. But, you know, at the beginning of the season, you know, the Bucks fans here were, were all giddy thinking Super Bowl. And I and I said, no, he's going to be 43. There's no way they get there. And, of course, on my show, I, I, I played the soundbite uh, last week, and I did it again this week, of the Fon saying, I was roo <laughs> because, <Yeah. laughs> because, you know, it, it just mind-boggled me to think that, you know, you figure Father Time has got to catch him sometime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's a real, um, whatever you want to say about all his wins and all and his achievements, and I, I mentioned the, the Brady fatigue, and I know there's some legitimate anger out there at just, you know, give someone else a chance for crying out loud. But what he's done to stay fit and condition himself, and, you know, and this is a guy who, you know, I think it was 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, he had a serious knee injury that he, had, he missed a, an entire season, but he came back. And whatever he has done, he needs to coach, you know, other young athletes, whatever their sport may be, as far as nutrition and conditioning goes, because he's mastered it. You know, Tom Brady is a great, great football player, but that's second to his his conditioning skills, which are clearly just off the charts. I mean, there's some genetics involved, I'm sure. You know, if someone, if a, you know, a doc wanted to get in and break down his, you know, his tissue and, and ligaments, and they're, they're probably designed a little bit better than most of us but uh he is he's an extraordinary athlete both both by uh nature and nurture yeah you know i think about it i, I don't know if you saw the side-by-side pictures of him and george blanda who played till he was 48 but <laughs> you know blanda yeah. at 43 looking like he was 68 you know and brady right. looks like he's yeah. 30 <laughs> like, brady does not age he puts the eye black on makes him look even younger yeah <laughs> it's extraordinary um yeah, he's. Uh, I, I'm. I'm out of words, really, Jeff. I can't compare him with any other. You know, Wayne Gretzky. I think is the greatest hockey player by some distance over whoever we want, you want to call second. Gordy Howe, Mario Lemieux, Tom Brady's now in that category. I think you know Jim Brown, Joe Montana, Walter Payton. There's some guys that Lawrence Taylor um, that would come up if you're talking about who is the best football player ever. But Brady has now distanced himself from those other three or four guys I named. Yeah, well, let's talk about his counterpart at the Super Bowl, you know, Patrick Mahomes. And, you know, when I, I was on a pregame show on Sunday, and, you know, my fear was that the the Chiefs' offensive line problems were had them compromised. And, you know, and Patrick Mahomes, for, you know, all, you know, his great mobility and everything, the poor guy was running for his life. But you, you look at a couple of throws he made, falling down, uh, you know, f- falling sideways, that he almost made. And, and you think about that, you know, if either one of those plays comes through, it might, you know, maybe they don't win the game, but it might be a different, closer outcome. Uh, you know, he would just, he was just amazing in that ballgame, considering that, uh, you know, he had zero protection. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought up the offensive line, uh, uh, Jeff. And, and, you know, for all that, that Tom Brady has accomplished, um, 
he's he's never been the athlete on the field that Patrick Mahomes is right now. I mean, Mahomes does things that are you know you, you might try in your on a sandlot you know in, in your you know sixth grade you know playground and get away with, but he does it on an NFL field. Um, uh, he, he's extraordinary, and I, I think we'll look back on the Super Bowl and kind of regret that we didn't get to see the two teams at their best. I actually had to be reminded of of the Chiefs' um, losses on the on the line, including. Uh, um, I'm going to forget his name. I, his initials LDT, I believe. The, the young man who, uh, the doctor who, who um, committed himself to to, uh, to battling the, this pandemic uh, for a season. But um, um, yeah, Mahomes, uh, you know, can single-handedly win games. And I honestly went into the game thinking that's what would happen. That, that he's just, you know, with with Travis Kelsey at his disposal, Tyreek Hill, that he would he, he has more um, more creative juice than Tom Brady. But you know. A few calls that, that went Brady's way, but then just the sheer dominance, uh, you end up with a 31-9 outcome. Yeah, and, and you look at the fact, too, that the Bucks' pass rush has been extraordinary during the the postseason as well. And you brought up the, you know, the officiating, too, and this is what drives me crazy about officiating at all levels of uh, of football is that the inconsistency that 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 takes place you know in the playoffs uh, up until the Super Bowl by and large I think they were letting letting the guys play and in the Super Bowl you know it was hanky time <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it was it was it was it was a little disturbing yeah, you know, I, I can take you way back here, Jeff. Uh, you know, pass interference I've long felt as the Achilles heel of football. You know, it's an interpretive penalty. It's not like, um, you know, false start offsides that are, are measurable. You know, it, it's it's up to the eye of the beholder. And there's some blatant pass interference that has to be called. There are lots of pass interference calls that could go either way. And the, the penalty against the defense is so severe, um, and it decides games. When I was, I wasn't even 10 years old, Jeff, when in, at the end of near the end of Super Bowl thirteen, there was a pass interference call against Benny Barnes going down the sideline, um, marking Lynn Swan at the Steelers. This was uh, January of seventy nine, mm-hmm. and um, call went against Barnes. The Steelers, you know, scored a touchdown shortly after the call. Uh, in a game they won by four points. I was pulling for the Cowboys. I was a big Roger Staubach fan, and my father explained to me, you know, that. The, the vagaries of pass interference as the best you can to a nine-year-old boy. And so going all the way back to, to a time that I imagine most of your listeners will not remember um, as vividly as I do, pass interference has, has been something that, that's you know swung games. And near the end of the first half in Super Bowl 55, that pass that Brady threw over the, the middle to, I forget who the receiver was, but it was um, Teron Matthew guarding him. Um, that pass interference flag isn't thrown if Brady doesn't throw the ball in that direction. And it was it was an uncatchable ball, but because it, it, it drew the attention of the officials to that receiver, the flag gets thrown, they get the ball on the one-yard line, touchdown later, and the game is entirely different uh, with that with that seven points added to the Bucks' uh, total at that time. So, um, yeah, it, it's always going to be the fatal flaw in that sport to me, and uh, I, I think we saw you know some ugly examples of it. Uh, Sunday night. Yeah, and of course, as a fellow Cowboys fan, I remember that Benny Barnes thing, and uh, that's I'm still glad you do. That's yeah, still, yeah. That still pains me <laughs> to to this right. day for sure. Um, and then I wanted to get your thoughts. You know, I I have, I I am almost at the point now w- with the Super Bowl. You know, you know they have to have the halftime show. You know, and this has infiltrated you know the, the college uh, championship. And all sorts of periphery events around it, you know. To me, it's like they're they're, they're force feeding entertainment uh, into into sports. Now, I go to a concert, a, a sporting event doesn't break out, <laughs> so why are right. we subjected to all these halftime shows? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, I, I think the the halftime for me, the halftime show at the Super Bowl became something different when Michael Jackson took the stage, and I believe it was. The January '93 Super Bowl, the Cowboys and Bills. Um, it, it, it was the early '90s, regardless. But that was, you know, that was the biggest, you know, star on the planet. Um, and all of a sudden, instead of just something that we could, you know, distract ourselves with for ten or fifteen minutes, we had a rock concert. Uh, and um, the the attempts year by year to try and one up the previous year when it comes to production or scale or electronics, what have you. Um, I, I hear you, you know, and, and we, we both know that there are people who are watching one football game a year solely for two things, the commercials and, and what they see at halftime. And 
Um, the weekend, I, I thought he and his crew did a, a remarkable job um, in a time when you can't have what we are used to seeing, which is a mob of fans down on the field during halftime, you know, what you described, a concert. But um, it was, uh, I, I, I can't say I listen to the weekend every weekend. I, I'm not a, not a big fan, but um, it was uh, it was a bit overproduced and, uh, you know, it's it's... Um, it's not going away. If they can do that during uh, a pandemic, have you know, have these masked um, troops, which I, I've got to believe gave you know ten-year-olds nightmares Sunday night, um, marching on the field. Just wait till we can all gather as one again. Um, hopefully, uh, twelve months from now. Yeah, and you know, it's it's kind of interesting too because you know, like you know, halftime in the NFL during the regular season. And the playoffs is twelve minutes, and and you know, and, and then you know they break out a half hour situation there. And I was reminded this week of what kind of spawned all this was. I don't know if you remember the time, but uh, this was before Fox was uh, a partner in the NFL. Was that they did uh, episode an episode of In Living Color at halftime. And it drew huge numbers away from the NFL game in the middle. You in the, in the middle. Wow! And, yeah, you know, I had forgotten that, but I watched that episode. Yes, you're reminding me now. Yeah, it was early '90s. Where it's it's around the, that Michael Jackson era. Yep. Um, I remember that now, and and it was it was a Super Bowl that Fox didn't televise, right? Correct. Yeah, because they but, had yeah, they had they, not they gotten they the NFL to steal the audience. Yes, exactly. For, for thirty minutes. Yeah, yeah. That that was. Um, that's some TV history. I'm glad you reminded me of it. Yeah, pretty, Damon Wayans and friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah good stuff. Uh, that's for sure. So, so you know, we don't have football now. Uh, well, I mean, the lower level college football will be around, so you know, hopefully, we'll get some of those games televised. But uh, the NFL and college football seasons, you know, had tons of challenges to get through. Uh, the college game more than the NFL. I mean, the NFL really did a good job getting all their games in without having to lose any contest whatsoever. I mean, probably the worst thing they had happen was Denver not having a quarterback. Uh, was really their, right. their their biggest hiccup. Uh, college, you know, they had to have some cancellations and things like that. But the but the fact that the, that they were able to trudge through and get their seasons completed is quite an accomplishment. Jeff, I never would have believed it, and, and I, I predicted otherwise. I, I didn't think you could have you know fifty three man rosters, and, and speaking of the NFL now, fifty three man rosters, and you know how many you know twenty twenty five thirty you know coaching staff, and get through uh, a four month season, and, and for every game to be played, you know we had to have. I think there was a Tuesday afternoon NFL game at some point this season. We had some odd you know rescheduled games, but to get them all in is a Herculean achievement. In this time, and, and and best of all, we didn't have any outbreaks that um, became something that um, was beyond the management of the, the NFL's healthcare system. Because that's let's look at sports in, in the modern context. Each of these franchises, whatever sport you're talking about, has its own you know healthcare program, and they they've all proved manageable to this point. And uh, the you know, same goes for college football for the most part. I mean, it, it's. In that case, you got a few things working against you. You got a larger roster. You got kids on the, on college campuses that it's just not conducive to anti, you know, socializing. Um, but even even college football managed to get its championship off, and, and most bowl games. Uh, there were some awkward matchups with you know records that didn't belong in bowl games, but um, it was a form of entertainment for us, and that, that's what that's what these sports exist for. And let's just hope, you know, you know, let's seriously hope, Jeff, that. This is the last time we see these kinds of spectacles. We we need to get the crowds back in these stadiums. I'll say you know along these lines, the thing I'm going to regret most about Super Bowl Fifty Five is that we had the first Super Bowl with a team playing in its home stadium, but we had to watch the, those silly you know cardboard cutouts in seventy five percent of the stadium, and um, that, that would have been really fun to, to to hear what the Super Bowl might have sounded like, you know, had it been packed with with Buccaneer fans and whatever seats they could have. You know, uh, scalp from you know the the uh, the the objective fans that that flocked to to Florida for the game. 
Yeah, no question about it. At, at, uh, but hopefully, yes, we will get back when the next football season rolls around. Will uh, be more like normal. Um, you know, one of the great uh, things that happens, of course, uh, during a Super Bowl, the, the weekend leading up to the Super Bowl, is the announcement of the, the Hall and Fave inductees. And uh, uh, being fellow Cowboy fans, you know, I, I particularly am very, very happy that Drew Pearson is finally in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, growing up as a Cowboys fan, you know, Roger Staubach was one A, and Drew Pearson was one B in my book. And you know, oh, yeah, you know, and 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 so Drew is one of my heroes. And you know the fact that he had to wait so long when he was the the he was the last guy from the all decade team of the seventies. <laughs> he was he was the only one that wasn't in until this year. Yeah, and it's such a yeah. crime that he had to wait so long. Yeah, I I, I hope we have some time because I can I can go on and on about Drew Pearson in this Hall of Fame snub that he endured and and, and very emotionally endured for uh, especially the last ten or so years. Um, you know. First of all, it, it speaks to how how NFL history is judged differently, and, the, and eras change. You know, you had two receivers in the, among this year's finalists, Reggie Wayne and Torrey Holt, whose numbers dwarf Drew Pearson's. You cannot talk like as we do in baseball. You know, there's no three thousand hit mark. There's no five hundred home runs that, that punches your ticket. Reggie Wayne had fourteen thousand yards receiving. You know, for his career with the Colts, and he's going to get in the Hall of Fame someday. Drew Pearson had less than eight thousand yards. Um, but but Drew Pearson was a three-time All-Pro during his career with Dallas, all three times in, in the 70s. Reggie Wayne only once named All-Pro. Torrey Holt, another guy, uh, 13,000-some-odd yards, only one time an All-Pro. Drew Pearson averaged 16 yards a catch, more than Holt or, or Wayne did. And, you know, the the one that sticks out for me, it's the second time I'm going to mention his name during this, this visit we're having, is, is Lynn Swan. Lynn Swan, his numbers weren't what Drew Pearson's were, but he won four championships with the Steelers, uh, never had a 1,000-yard season, and Pearson had two. But Lynn Swan got in the Hall of Fame 20 years ago. It was a, it was a long-time oversight. Um, I thought it was egregious last year when the NFL expanded the induction class to, to 20 members because of the centennial and drew still didn't get in but they've done right now and and um you know you mentioned Staubach, uh, jeff I, roger Staubach, i'm not sure is a hall of famer or, or he's certainly not the hall of famer the scale he became if it weren't for drew pearson and 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 not just you know the volume but the the catches he made the, the hail mary my, my goodness that one of the five most famous plays in nfl history that was Drew pearson catching that ball against minnesota and um, you know, at this point, I just hope they get his afro right on his bus, don't you? I mean, he, <laughs> yeah. he had that gorgeous afro. I hope they get that right when, yeah. they, um, yeah, when he, they finally unveil his bus stop at Canton. Yeah, he was in the Oscar Gamble League with afros, right? You Absolutely, know, you, yeah. You know, he, cool. was, he was cool as cool. He and Dr. J, they were um, – th- th- those afros um, – they grabbed you. Oh no! I mean, I had you know, I always wanted to wear eighty eight, and uh, you know, I wanted to be Drew Pearson, and, and you know, and and you think about the time when he played too, uh, you know, he made a living catching the ball over the middle, and you think back to that time, you know, basically safeties could assault you uh, oh coming gosh, over the yeah. middle. You know, th- you know, today's game, you know, they're they're probably thrown out and suspended for the rest of the year. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, I'm glad you brought up over the middle, Jeff, because he, and I I think you're going to remember this play too. If you do, if you remember Super Bowl thirteen, you're going to remember the the 1982, um, I'm sorry, the 1981 NFC Championship played in January of 82 in San Francisco. And everyone remembers that game for the catch that Dwight Clark made to beat Dallas. After the catch was made, Dallas had the ball. They had one more possession. And Drew Pearson caught a ball over the middle from Danny White and was breaking free. And I believe he was across midfield when he was grabbed from behind. And I'm going to forget the maybe Eric Wright. It was Eric Wright. Defensive back. It was him. Was it Eric Wright? Yep. And Eric Wright grabbed his jersey from behind and pulled and pulled him down. And the 49ers win their first NFC title and go on to win their first Super Bowl. Had Drew Pearson scored that touchdown, Jeff, and the Cowboys had won, he would have been in the Hall of Fame 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, you know, it's. It's so cruel the game of inches that football can be, and and I mentioned you know Lynn Swan with those four championships, he goes in with you know career numbers on the back of his football card that are not the equal of Drew Pearson's, but uh, Pearson was just shy apparently in the uh, in the memory category, and that's what it becomes. These you know the NFL, the Pro Football Hall of Fame has a select group of only about fifty voters, and when they get in that room, how do you remember a player five years after he's retired and 
had Pearson scored that touchdown, I've long said it's a different story. And his his bust right now is gathering a lot of dust. <laughs> um, but um, they've done right. They've gotten it right finally. Yeah, you I'm know. glad Pearson's here to, to see. There's nothing worse than than a you know a, an icon dying and then finally getting into the Hall of Fame. So it's it's going to be a good uh, a good afternoon come or good evening come. Uh, Come August in Canton. Yeah, no question. You know, and 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 you and you think about that too. Um, I think you were mentioning, uh, uh, you know, Lynn Swan. You know, Lynn Swan wasn't even the best receiver on his own team. John Stallworth right. was the was <laughs> was the, was a great Absolutely. receiver. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. Don't get me started on the Pearson Swan uh, comparisons, <laughs> especially after we mentioned pass interference, because I, I won't be I won't be fair. Because <laughs> uh, Swanee was a great player, a beautiful receiver, and, and he did have some iconic catches that, um, that that got him into the Hall of Fame. But uh, he's he's not Drew Pearson. Yeah, no way. <laughs> well, uh, of course, another you know probably the, the the biggest name in the Hall of Fame class is, and you know, we've talked about it a little bit earlier, Peyton Manning. And you know, it, what what amazes me about Peyton Manning uh, is just the fact that he is so likable. And, yeah. and, you know, he, you know, nobody's done commercials like he has. And his, 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 uh, his show that he has, Peyton Places on ESPN Plus, is tremendous. Um, but, you know, as a football player, he's got all the credentials. I mean, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. And, to th- you know, and to think when you compare his uh, career to Brady's, I mean, if if Brady wasn't around, you know, maybe Manning's winning seven Super Bowls. <laughs> no, yeah, no question. Uh, Peyton was an extraordinary football player, and if anything, I think he's he's so talented in front of the camera uh, as an entertainer that uh, his his football career is going to become, <laughs> you know, ten years, twenty years from now, uh, sort of a secondary uh, note. But he just extraordinary. The numbers he put up really from his rookie season in Indianapolis. Um, after a, an amazing career uh, at Tennessee, um, he's. Uh, you know, let's not forget that, that Peyton Manning beat Tom Brady in three AFC championships. So Brady's, uh, you know, his the only feud he really can carry with him when he finally goes to Canton himself is with the Manning family. Hmm. You know, losing a pair of Super Bowls to Eli, and he he had the chance to go to three other Super Bowls um, had Peyton Manning not beaten him, you know, twice with Denver. Um, Manning was was such a cerebral guy. He, even going back to his college days, and you felt like if his if his body was able to keep up to the, the speed of the NFL and, and withstand you know the the kind of hits that a quarterback takes, he'd have a good career. But on the scale he he accomplished, I, I I'm not sure I saw it um, um, reaching that level. But but what a player! And, and we've been so lucky as as fans of our generation to see Brady and Manning and into you know the likes of Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers. Um, Brett Favre. It's been a, an incredible uh, century so far for quarterbacks. Yeah, and you think about it, the other aspect too is, you know, uh, quarterbacks have been calling audibles for years, but he brought it to the, the to the forefront the way he called audibles <laughs> with Omaha, Omaha, Omaha. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you always felt like Peyton Manning was coaching his team. At least I did. I, I never always felt you know whether it's Gary Kubiak or Tony Dungy on the sideline. I thought they were answering to Peyton more than the other way around because they could not possibly know more about what the defense is showing uh, Peyton Manning and his and his teammates than the quarterback himself. He was so so cerebral and smart, and and he, he had a good arm, not a great arm. He could, you know, he wasn't very mobile, but he, he somehow avoided taking big hits. You know, as big as he was, and I'll always respect that a lot about uh, Peyton. Um, you know, considering the duration of his career, you know, he had the neck injury late, but then. Look at his his rebirth in Denver, which uh, resulted in a championship for the Broncos. Yeah. Now, even though you uh, reside in the other half of the state from Knoxville, you know I was there during the Peyton Manning years for a couple a couple of years, and uh, Tennessee football is a is a big deal in that state. And I wanted to get your opinion since we both you know uh, cover uh, AAC teams on on a regular basis. Uh, with Josh Heupel uh, taking over the Vols program, following uh, Danny White as the athletic director there. How do you think he is being viewed as the new head coach in Knoxville? Because Tennessee football has been uh, uh, bad for a long time. Yeah, it, it really has. You know, I, I was looking at some dates and, and to, to remind yourself that Tennessee hasn't played in the SEC championship since 2007. You know, they haven't been in the top 10 since 2001. You know, this is a program that, um, uh, you know, throughout the 90s was one of the you know five or six best in the country and was strong in the 80s under Johnny Majors. 
but uh, the last last two decades have not been good in, in Knoxville. Um, it's hard for me to take the temperature, uh, you know, of the fan base here in Memphis. Uh, Jeff is, you know, that Tiger fans don't don't buy or, or show any orange anywhere. So it, I, I, I've got to walk carefully when I'm, you know, carrying my Tiger beat um, when it comes to my Knoxville roots. I, I was born in, in Knoxville. I have UT uh, alumni parents. But um, the way I see the Josh Heupel situation is, is stability, I think, may, may finally have found its way to Knoxville. Uh, Heupel put together, you know, a really good, if short run, at UCF, um, he, he's a young guy. He he fits the mold of the, the two men that I've been eyewitness to, um, you know, turning the Memphis program 180 degrees, and that's Justin Fuente and Mike Norvell. You know, offensive-minded coaches, creative coaches. You know, still on the young scale, um, with, with eyes toward uh, toward scoring a lot of points, toward toward outscoring their opponents. That hasn't been the case in Tennessee. You know, not not with Jeremy Pruitt, not with Butch Jones before him. Um, so uh, I, I'd like to think Tennessee's found some stability. I think the turnover, both with uh, the head football coach and the athletic director being in sync, you know, Danny White um, heading north to Knoxville, I think that will be meaningful and uh, will have a ripple effect. And, and I'd like to see, I'd like to hope that Tennessee football is competitive again come, you know, three, four or five years down the road. Yeah, and while I also find very interesting as well is uh, uh, having seen it for myself, and you know this is a long time ago, obviously, but the the Tennessee fan base is very boisterous and uh, you know sometimes delusional, uh, depending on who you, whom, whom you ask. And 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 I witnessed this before social media. <laughs> so if Josh Heupel thought his seat was getting a little warm in Orlando, <laughs> he hasn't seen anything yet when it comes to fan bases. I don't think. All right. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's scary, and it's it's not a job I would want. Um, and uh, you know, with the likes of you know Peyton Manning roaming around, and now Jason Witten's retired. There, there are some big, you know, volunteer names floating around out there that that some some fans, you know, uh, of the Big Orange would would fantasize about about being in command of the program. I I, I see Josh Heupel as being a guy who's who's got it right between his ears, um, uh, meaning he's got it correct. He has a he has a sense of what a program needs, um, and uh, you know, gradual now. You know, gradual used to be you build a program in six, seven years. Gradual now means I want to see something no later than two years that, that shows we're we're different. And I think Heupel's um, um, capable of that based on what I, I saw him do with UCF. And um, you know, it, now will Tennessee fans be patient for you know two years, twenty four months? I can't tell you that. I'm not going to try and forecast it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it will be it would be something to be to, to keep an eye out though. That's for sure. But uh, but but you know they have nothing else left but to have some patience. I would think. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I mean, it it couldn't go much more wrong than it has, especially with you know a, a hint of scandal now following Pruitt. I mean, Heupel may find himself you know ineligible for for postseason play for a while. Um, we got to see how that all shakes out. But it's. It's um you know maybe you got to burn a village down before you build it back up and that, that's what's happened in Knoxville. Yeah, you know, and maybe uh, you know a ban on postseason play might be a blessing in disguise uh, because it does lower the expectations to some degree too. Absolutely, no question. Yeah, well, uh, as as I know, you are a, a big baseball fan, such as I am, and um, you know, twenty twenty one of the reasons it's going to you know uh, kind of be. Uh, you know, unmemorable to us is is because of you know all the great Hall of Famers and legends of the game that passed away uh, over the course of the last year. And you know, I don't know if it's just because you know we're so much more media aware and all this news happens and and you know and and you know I guess you know generations uh, you know are 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 flipping the calendar, if you will. Uh, just the the inordinate amount of uh, of baseball legends that have passed the last year has been such a gut punch. I, it's been really, really sad. I, let me tell you, I've been staring at some baseball cards, Jeff, like I haven't in a long, long time. Um, you know, they, they we like to say that you know these celebrity deaths happen in three. If only it was just three in 2020. But um, you know, from Al Kaline to you know to, to a couple of my you know heroes, uh, Bob Gibson and Lou Brock, two men that um, they're, they're family. I'm a third generation Cardinal fan, and I'm a little bit young. I, I did not see Bob Gibson play I, that I can remember I, I, I'll get to 
um, some some very early days in Atlanta in a minute. But um, but Lou Brock, my my earliest Cardinal memory is Lou Brock's three thousandth hit in nineteen seventy nine, his final season against the Cubs. Uh, those two guys were um, they're they're like you know uncles. You've got them. We all have them. Um, um, sports heroes that are older than us that you know we may not have had access to, but we read about. We saw the you know some some highlight clips back when television was only three or four channels but we, we saw the highlight clips and we read the magazines and, and newspapers and and brock and gibson were that sort for me and and uh to have been now the last 30 years of my life here in memphis and with the proximity to uh st louis i've had the chance to you know meet both you know brock and gibson briefly you know uh shake their hand tell them how much i admired them uh to lose them is is uh it, it's been it's been a loss it's a death in the family and um uh, here we turn to 2021, and, and Hank Aaron, for crying out loud. Uh, mm-hmm. My family, Jeff, uh, we lived in, in in Atlanta in the early 70s. Um, my my father and mother were both working toward their doctorate at, at Emory. And um, my little sister, my only sibling, Jeff, was born 10 days before Hank Aaron broke uh, Babe Ruth's home run record in, in the same city. Mm-hmm. You know this, and I, and I remember my, my little the little bundle my mom brought home from the hospital, my sister, and to think 10 days later, the most famous home run in baseball would be hit. Hank Aaron's also uh, part of my um, um, extended, you know, baseball family. So to, to lose him and, and, you know, what a, what a champion human being, let alone baseball player. It's, it's, um, it's painful and it's heavy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, you know, and being a Braves fan, you know, it, it, it did happen in threes for us because we lost Phil Necro and we lost right. Don Sutton, who obviously was a was a was a beloved announcer for us. Uh, even right. though he was a, a great Dodger player. And then, of course, Hank Aaron. Um, and yeah, and, and, and the one thing that I always come back to on, on Hank Aaron is not only just all the feats that, that he had in, you know, and, and he was more than just a home run hitter. He was a great all around player. And you, and then the other aspect is nobody. I have never heard a bad word about Hank Aaron. No, no. He, he um, as I said, just a champion human being. I can share a, a story, sort of a, a two degrees of separation. I have a childhood friend who lives in, in Middle Tennessee. She lives in Murfreesboro, and she was she was about I think seven or eight years old, and it was the first time she had was flying by herself, and she she boarded a plane in Atlanta. And was seated. I, I guess they, they took the ch- the ch- child children um, you know, flying without parents, and they sat up in first class. And she sat right next to Hank Aaron. Oh. And my my friend Whitney's story is that Hank Aaron, who who she was only told who he was afterwards by um, you know a stewardess, uh, a flight attendant, what have you. Hank Aaron was was this gentleman who made sure she had her, her got her peanuts, got her water, made sure she you know found wh- whoever was greeting her at her destination before he went on his own way. Uh, it, it's, it's just a classic, you know. The, and, and by this time, Hank Aaron was already the home run king. He was he was the Hank Aaron, but caring for this eight year old little girl as though she were his own, um, in in something that he would never be thanked for, um, and would never be. Um, saluted for until here we are you know 40 years later talking about it on on your show that he's just he's that decent a human being yeah you know when uh recently um uh right after his passing um uh on dan patrick they they replayed the last interview he did with hank aaron which would have been april of last year and it was so interesting listening to that interview because you know before it's over you know, Hank is like stopped and asking Dan, how you doing, man? You know, I watch your show every day and you guys, you know, how you doing and all that is like, you know, it's, it's like, you know, he's, he's, he's taking the attention and turning it to, to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. There are people, you know, I, I'm, as I said, I, I'm, I've got Cardinal blood. So Stan Musial is, is sort of the Hank Aaron of, of the Cardinal franchise. And he, he, it was often said that when Stan Musial walked in a room, he, he just made you feel like you were more important than anybody else. That that you, the, the the anonymous fan or reporter or individual or teammate, he lifted you. And there are few human beings, they're rare, who have that quality. And, and Hank Aaron certainly had it. And you know, with Hank Aaron, he had every reason to be somewhat bitter and and angry um, for for reasons that he suffered during his playing career with racism, and then. The man who who broke his record, uh, clearly doing it, fueled by you know 
chemicals that that Aaron didn't have access to, or had he had he had he chosen to use steroids, and I, I doubt he would have. But um, he had all kinds of reason to be somewhat bitter. Never never showed it. Never showed an ounce of bitterness. And that that kind of human being is someone who makes the planet makes makes all of us better without him even knowing he's making us uh, you know feel better. It's it's a it's a true uh, angel quality. Yeah, we need more of those. That's for sure. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. He's missed. Yes. So, uh, you know, we're we're about to come up on on a new baseball season. Last year, we had the truncated sixty game season, uh, which uh, you know they were able to get through uh, finally, and the the Dodgers finally got their long awaited title. And um, wanted to get your thoughts because they have now decided to continue them for this season, having the. Um, the runner on second base to start extra innings, uh, being uh, one of those thoughts, and then the other. And why am I why am I having a blank at the moment? <laughs> uh, seven inning doubleheaders. Yes, thank you. Seven inning doubleheaders yep. um, uh, are going to continue into this season. Uh, what are your thoughts on the on those two particular items? Yeah, yeah I like the doubleheaders. I, I can see that. You know, fourteen innings uh, of of baseball. Um, I, I, I suppose is enough. It, not for me. I'd sit there and watch watch baseball, you know, twenty four hours. But um, I, I can't stand the, the the extra inning, you know, ghost runner. I want to call him. It's not really a ghost runner, but um, it, you know, perhaps if they put in something, if it reached the the twelfth inning, thirteenth inning, then you start this. But to go right into the tenth inning and have that um, that fabricated runner, I don't like it. I, I don't like it, Jeff. Um, it's it's um, it's a nod to the uh, the reduced attention span of the modern sports fan. And I, I hear that, and baseball's wrestling with it, you know, particularly with all the strikeouts um, and, and uh, trying to keep uh, young fans' attention. But um, you're not going to find an advocate in my house for that for that extra runner. Yeah, I actually liked it more than I thought I would, just because I I kind of liked the sense of urgency it kind of built uh, in a more immediate fashion. Um, that, that is there, yeah, and I acknowledge that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the first pitch of an extra inning matters in ways that it didn't if you don't have a runner on second but you know why, why not start a ghost runner in the seventh inning or mm-hmm. uh, the, the fifth inning I, I it's um it, it just it seems uh it seems synthetic to me not like it's not it hasn't been an organic um part of the game's growth that's i think where i where i get my, my feathers ruffled a little bit yeah well the other thing they did last year was the universal dh that has not been put into play for this season I still think there might be a chance it still gets in before they start the season. Um, I'm of the opinion now, while I am a National League guy, would rather see my pitchers hit. Uh, I think having the the difference in both leagues is is kind of ludicrous with all the interleague play. That uh, it just needs to be universal all the way around. Yeah, it's going to happen. I'm as I'm as old school as it gets. You're not going to interview anybody who's more you know old school baseball than I am, and I'm I'm. Not big on DHs. I, I I think DHs should have to wait six years instead of five before Hall of Fame eligibility. I, I just I, I have a problem with someone who doesn't have to pick up a glove to play baseball. But um, but it's going to happen. It needs to happen um, along the lines of what I was just just talking about. There are too many strikeouts in baseball with uh, with your position players, let alone putting a pitcher up you know three or four times. You know I've heard creative thoughts about maybe instituting a DH that will only bat um, until you replace the starting pitcher, or or maybe it's the other way around. You you put a DH in uh, once you've taken a starting pitcher out. They, they, there are thoughts about how to come up with a compromise, but I'm I'm convinced, Jeff, that it'll it'll be universal both leagues um, and sooner, you know, rather than later. Yeah, and you know, and I think the one thing that uh, that ended ended up not getting talked about as much because of the. The changes they made uh, for the truncated season with the the rules that we just talked about was you know last year was the first year was with the minimum three batter rule for a, for a relief pitcher and to me that kind of got a little uh, uh, overshadowed by these other uh, rules changes. Um, again, I I hate the constant uh, you know change the pitcher for every batter scenario, but I also yeah. think it's 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 kind of a crime to handcuff a manager from being able to do whatever he wants to do. Yeah, you know, I, I've got some thoughts on that, and it's you know, I, I watch Tony Larusa 
for 16 years with St. Louis and in before that in his days with Oakland and the White Sox and micromanaging a bullpen and, you know, you know, one pitcher per inning, one pitcher per batter. I, I don't like it. I, I think that, that baseball could could reset itself somewhat if it had a limit on the number of pitchers that a, that a roster can hold. You have rosters now with most of them have 13 pitchers and 12 position players. Some go as high as, as 14 pitchers during, you know, you know, a, a stretch of the season where you might have some double headers. It's it's too many. I, I think you can can come up with twenty seven outs without having a nine or ten man bullpen. I, it's it's silly. Um, now I I think the toothpaste is out of the tube. I, I think I could preach this from you know Mount Everest, and I'm not sure a lot of baseball managers would listen to me. But I think you could reset the game and you know reduce the number of stoppages we see and uh, you know the you know in, in and out of the bullpen without having that three batter rule if it was reconsidered on a larger scale. But I, I just, I think that's going to take some committee meetings that may not happen. Yeah. And it's such a challenge because, you know, uh, you know, baseball is the one major sport that does not operate with a clock. And right. so, so, you know, so having to try to manufacture things to speed up the game, it, it, it's kind of a slippery slope. It is. It is. And, you know, I, I cannot stand that clock here, here in Memphis at AutoZone Park. They have one of those, digital clocks out, out beyond the center field wall that's supposed to be for the, the pitcher. I, I forget what the, is it a 40-second clock? or I forget what it is. The pitchers are supposed to throw. And, and one of the reasons I go to a baseball stadium is to avoid clocks. I mean, I, I'm a deadline guy. I, I mean, I'm a journalist, magazines, newspapers, what have you. And I'm, I'm constantly looking at a clock just to, you know, get, get my paycheck, you know, twice a month. To go to a place where time is not so important where things slow down a little bit, you know, imagine that you can put a screen up, you know, away and, and just relish uh, some green grass, blue sky and, uh, and talented athletes. Um, that, that's the part I, I wish baseball could find a way to embrace and not just embrace, but sell, you know, convince Jeff, um, younger audiences that take your phone and let's have a, let's have a no phone day Sunday afternoon at the ballpark, put your phone in your pocket, silence it and see what happens over three hours with just conversation and the sights in front of you. I think we might might find some progress that's on a more important level than, than merely sports fandom if, if that kind of approach were taken because it's it, it's a screen and clock world, and when, when clocks become part of baseball, we've lost something significant. Yeah, no question about that. And and, and again, I think it, it kind of comes down to, you know, there, there are things that have kind of gotten away from baseball that uh, they may, you know, kind of look back into their history upon. You know, whenever you watch these old uh, baseball classics on MLB Network, um, guys don't get out of the batter's box. You know, I mean, right. these there are Good simple yeah. there are simple things they could do, uh, you know, instead of you know watching a guy change his gloves six times. You know, I just oh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it's such a beautiful game, and it, and it it I think if I think if we could simplify it more instead of overthinking, we we get back back there. Um, yeah, the the uh, the stepping out of the batter's box when a when a pitch is a is a strike, you know, it's one thing if if it's inside, you get dusted off a little bit, okay. But you know, when, when a pitch is called strike, you have no reason to move out of the box. Yeah, I, I agree with you there, hundred percent. Yeah. Well, Frank, this has been a whole lot of fun. I do appreciate it. And uh, if you would uh, take a moment or two and uh, promote the the work that you do there. Sure, yeah. I'm the managing editor of Memphis Magazine, of course. Yeah, you can find my sports writing at memphisflyer.com. Um, I cover the Tigers uh, basketball, football, and, and if we have a minor league baseball season, I'll be covering the Memphis Redbirds in just a few weeks. Um, I, I've, I've written a novel, Trey's Company. You can find it on Amazon.com. I'd love to sell some of your listeners that. It's a coming-of-age story about a, a 13-year-old boy spending a summer away from home and falling in love and getting into, into trouble and, and doing the kind of things that, that we all remember doing. Um, during uh, seminal summers of our, our youth. But um, again, Trey's company, that can be found at Amazon.com and, um, you know, help help a, help a poor author become rich. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We will, do, we will do what we can. Frank Murtaugh, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for being on. I appreciate it, Jeff. It's always, always good visiting with you. And we will be right back to close out with the TV theme right after this. No Republicans, no Democrats, no team from Washington, no team with a star on the side of their head. We don't even talk about alpha and beta storms around here. And if you believe all of that, I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. Captain and Company in the morning, join me 9 to noon, weekday mornings on OldSchool101.com, because class is always in session around here. 
Virus or no virus. And that is the theme from the original Equalizer that ran in the 1980s, 1985 to 1989 on CBS, you know, with the reboot of that series that debuted after the Super Bowl, reimagined with Queen Latifah as the lead character. I did record, and I watched it, and I give it two thumbs up, by the way. But the original Equalizer, 1985-1989 on CBS, as we mentioned, Edward Woodward... <laughs> Sorry, the Fonz there. Edward Woodward, as retired intelligence agent with a mysterious past, he uses those former skill, uh, skills rather from his former career to get justice on behalf of innocent people who are in dangerous circumstances. They have nowhere else to go. Uh, Robert McCall was the character's name, former covert operations officer. And they usually found him through a newspaper classified ad. You remember those? Got a problem? Odds against you, call the Equalizer. 212-555-4200. And uh, again, he would help out folks who had no place to turn. And the new reboot, well, actually before they rebooted the uh, TV series second time, obviously they... Uh, rebooted it as a film uh, franchise, if you will. They did a couple movies with Denzel Washington in the lead character role. And now the new show on CBS, as we mentioned, the Queen, Queen Latifah, as Robin McCall. Difference is uh, she has a few sidekicks in this particular version of the show. The Woodward version in the 80s, he was a solo entrepreneur most of the time. So there you have it, the Equalizer, as our TV theme for this week. Once again, thanks to Frank Murtaugh for his participation in today's program. And with that, we are done here. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at JeffAllen underscore 88, on Facebook at JeffAllen88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Does your dog itch, suffer from debilitating skin allergies, or trouble hot spots? We have the solution using the healing power of neem. Kramer's Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. Go to KramerSalve.net to order today with new low pricing. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E dot net.